Good morning, everyone. Uh, glad you're here this morning. Uh, for those of you that do not know, my name is Albert. I'm the lead pastor of the Tapestry Church Network. And I just uh, discovered this week that this is like, this is my, so I get the pleasure, I'll back up, of going to the different churches. Like, so we're one church with four different campuses. And so one time, one week I'm at Knights and one week I'm at Marpole and Monday Park. This is my third week in a row in Richmond. Well, I don't know why you're hooing, but um, I'm sorry. I, want to, I apologize for that, but that's crazy how the schedule works. But it, I woke up this morning going, wow, I get to go to Richmond again. It like, feels like coming home, you know, so it's, it's awesome. Uh, so today we're going to start a brand new sermon series on the topic of worship. But when we use that term worship, what do we actually mean, right? When we say, oh, I'm going to worship, what, what does that mean? So what I'd like us to do as we begin this morning, I want you to turn to the neighbor that looks smarter uh, than you, which is hard. Come on, it's not smarter than you. Okay, just turn to the person that might be smarter because I want you to come up, you know, talk amongst yourselves with the most awesome, amazing, stupendous definition, one sentence about worship. So the question is a definition that begins like, worship is blank. Okay? A good definition. You have one minute. Go. Worship is the offering of your body to the Lord. The spiritual service of worship is the offering. Well, worship is what we do when we see who, who God is. Of course, we're only ever going to see a little glimpse of that. But uh, the greatest revelation is in, in Jesus Christ. And the more we see of him, the more it, it evokes worship and draws out uh, really what we're created for, to, to love God. Worship is overcoming that which prevents us from giving glory to God, which is exactly what he made us to do. To me, I think worship is just living for something more than yourself. To me, it's like an opening of your hands, an opening of your heart. Yeah, everyone worships something, or we worship someone. I think worship is embracing what God has done for you and offering it back. Recognizing that God is greater than I am. Doing whatever it is you're created for and, and kind of discovering um, that, that purpose in your life. Doing it to the best of your ability, not thinking. It's not really something you do, more like something that you are. Maybe that is music, but I don't think it is specific to music. I think worship is a way of life. It could be art or accounting or whatever it is. I think living in that out there and doing it the best you can unto the Lord. Worship is the orientation of yourself to something else, and hence Christian worship is the orientation of yourself to God. Um, to me, I think worship is just your day-to-day -day walk in everything you do, whatever your job is, just doing it unto God. Uh, worship to me is about sacrifice, it's about giving a life to God, it's about obedience. 
it's, it's the connection with God and, and kind of doing the things that honor, honors Him, you know. Worship to me is giving God His worth and I believe He's worthy. So therefore it leads to an abandoned lifestyle, abandoned lifestyle to worship Him. He's the focus of everything. Just something that shows a human connection that actually goes up to God, I think, and, and God can see it as pleasing. I think worship is uh, the response of the heart and the mind and, and the spirit to God's amazing revelation of who Jesus is. We sing songs, recognize that we're singing about Him. When we write songs, we are writing songs about Him. Worship can either be a very big subject or a very small one, I think. For me, I always remember Colossians 3.23 which says, Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as if working for the Lord and not for men. Worship songs are songs that point towards Him. Worship life, a life that points towards Him. Whatever it is we're doing, we do it for God and that's worship. That's what I think worship is all about. Awesome. So we use this term, right? And we usually use the term to connote some kind of singing or some kind of music. But as we just saw in this video, worship means a lot more than just music. The word worship actually comes from two words in the Old English. We earth, where we get the words worth or worthy, and sipe or ship, where we get the word ascribe. And so to worship literally means to assign or ascribe worth to someone or something. Worship then as an action, as a posture, is probably best depicted as what or who we are willing to bend our knee to. Who are we willing to bow down to? Lower our head, bend our knee, and bow down. That is the picture of worship. And so we can worship a lot of different things. We can worship status and popularity, and so we bow down to other people and likes. We can worship money and things, and so we literally bow down to get into our fancy cars or our technology or our possessions. Or probably the granddaddy of them all, we can bow down and worship ourselves, And so we end up bowing down to our pleasures, our desires, our feelings. We can worship anything, and we do. Because I think we humans were created for worship. I mean, have you ever walked along the seawall at Stanley Park, the sun is setting, and you're just like, wow, that's beautiful. And you begin to worship. So I think worship is hardwired. It's innate in all of us. And so do we give our worship to celebrities? to nature, to self, and to other things. I mean, there's a lot of different things that we can give our worship to, but our greatest possible admiration must always go to God, that He is the only person worthy of our ultimate worship, to bend our knee, to lower our head, and to worship the one and only true God. So today we're going to talk about worship and there's this great psalm that points to what worship is. It's Psalm 103. So I would ask you to please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. And I would ask that you read the bold, uh, as well as when it says all. The Word of the Lord reads, Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise His holy name. who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit 
and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. And together, praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we praise you and we thank you for who you are. And as we just heard, you forgive us of our sins. You heal of us of our diseases. You redeem our lives from the pit. You are compassionate. You are gracious. You are Father. You forgive. You send your Son. We thank you and we praise you and we bless you. Hear us now, Lord, as we offer our prayers of blessing and adoration for who you are, silently and in our hearts, hear our prayers as we lift up our prayers of adoration. Father, you are good. You are mighty to save. You are wonderful. You think of us all the time. You bless us. You look after us. You protect us. You guide us. You send your spirit. You sent your son to die for us. And for that, we give you all our glory, all our praise, and everything we have is owed to you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. We ask for the Holy Spirit in our lives, and we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please just be seated. Okay, was that not awesome? I thought that was awesome. <laughs> and that was a great psalm. And there's so many good things in this psalm that I don't even know where to begin, but this morning I thought I'd concentrate on three things. Who, why, and when. So who do we worship, why do we worship, and when we worship, all right? Who, why, and when. So first of all, who and ownership, which is a no-brainer. It's something that we've already alluded to, that God should be the one and only object of our worship. In the very first line of the psalm, David writes, praise the Lord, O my soul. And in the very last line of the psalm, David writes, praise the Lord, O my soul, that it begins the same way it ends with praise, reminding us that it's all about God, right? He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, and everything is about God. 
Eleven times in the psalm, the name of the Lord is mentioned. Eleven times, and in your Bible, every time that the, Lord, the name of the Lord is mentioned, have you noticed that it's capitalized? Why? Well, because the name of the Lord is Yahweh, a name to be revered. It's capitalized that God is holy, covenantal, and that is His personal name. And the first time we hear of this name is in the book of Exodus, when God appears before Moses in a burning bush. And this is already alluded to in verse 7 of our psalm, when David writes this, He, that is the Lord, made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. That God takes the initiative, that God always takes the first step. He calls Moses to go back to Egypt and to, let his, to ask the Pharaoh to let his people go from slavery. It is in that context, then, that Moses asks God for his name. And by asking God for his name, he's essentially asking God for his identity, for his character. Who are you? And what kind of God are you going to be? Well, God does not remain silent. It's the very opposite, that God actually wants to reveal who he is to us. He wants to tell us his name. He wants to tell us who he is and what he is about. And so God tells Moses that his name is Yahweh. So what does Yahweh actually mean? Because the English language actually has trouble translating this word. But what's important to know that Yahweh is actually a verb. It's not a noun. It's a verb. That says something about God, doesn't it? That Yahweh is derived from the Hebrew root word to be. So it's a we need verb. And so it conveys the notion of God actively always being what we need him to be. He is the I am. And I put it this way. And you've seen this before, but God is basically saying, I am the past, the present, and the future. I am all you need me to be. I am what you need. I am sufficient. I am enough. I am able. I can. I am. That's God's holy and personal name. Yahweh, then, is not a title. It's a personal name, like Albert and Eduardo and Russell. It's a name. And in the ancient Near East, a person's name conveys their character and their identity. What this shows us then, that God is not some unnamed or unknown deity, but a specific God named Yahweh who seeks and desires relationship. He desires us to know his name. He invites us to worship, to call on his name, to praise his name, to pray in his name, to sing his name. Why do we worship? Because of who God is. Who? Yahweh. And please note that this is about God and not about us. I really enjoyed the kids' sermon this morning because it's a reminder, right, that worship is always about God and not ourselves. There's this great little quote from uh, author and pastor Francis Chan who, after a service, some person came up to him and complained about the worship service. Says, I didn't really enjoy the worship service. And Francis Chan says, oh, that's okay, that's okay, because you know what? We weren't worshiping you. It's not about you. We gather together to worship God. Who do we worship? God. That's the first point. Which leads to the second point. Why then should we worship? Again, the psalm begins the same way it ends, right? Praise the Lord, O my soul. And it ends with praise the Lord, O my soul. And the 22 verses in between explain why. And so I'm just going to read some of these things. We worship God because in verse 3, it writes, He forgives all our sins and heals all our diseases. That God not only heals our spiritual sins, but He also heals our physical illnesses. 
I remember visiting John Smith. Um, he passed away earlier this year. But I remember when he got sick 10 years ago with an aneurysm and visited him in the hospital every day, and I had to read Psalm 103 because he loved to hear it, this promise that God will heal him, especially that part about how our youth will be renewed like an eagle. Verse 8, David writes that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, rich in love, which is pretty much my favorite line in the whole psalm, about how God is both patient and also kind, passive but also active, passive in that he loves us so much he gives us the freedom to make decisions and choices on our own, but he also loves us so much that he actively saves us from those decisions that we make, that he is passive and yet active. And then eventually he is so active that he sends his son down to earth to save us. Verse 12, it says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us that God in Jesus forgives us of our sins completely. Like as far as the horizons from east and the west, we are forgiven. Verse 14, for he knows how we are formed, that he created us, and not only us, but all of creation, right? Stars, the moon, the mountains, and the sky. And verse 17, it says, from the everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love, his steadfast love, this is his has said, his covenantal love for those who revere him. That God is a covenantal God. He's a God who keeps his promises. I could go on and on, but that is the why. We worship God in response, in response to his love, his glory, his grace, his magnificence. And he loves, absolutely loves to hear our worship. So let me clear up something here. Some people think that God is up in heaven, and he's just sitting there enjoying our worship. Like he's sitting there going, yeah, worship me, me, yeah, I dig it, right? Some of us think like that. So that's so human of us to think of that, because that's not why God enjoys our worship. He enjoys our worship not because of what it does for him, but what it does in us. Let me explain. Growing up, for me, uh, you think of my age category, the best and most famous basketball player was Michael Jordan. That's very good. Same age category. That's why we know this. Uh, so it was Michael Jordan, right? And everyone wanted to be Michael Jordan because he was the best. And there was even a movie out that was called like Be Like Mike, right? Everyone wanted to be like Mike. And on the basketball court, everyone wanted to play like Mike. So I remember showing up on the court and everyone would have their Air Jordans on and their uh, Chicago Bull jerseys. And they chew gum and they kind of swagger along with him. And then when they go to the net, they stick out their tongue just like Jordan because they wanted to be like him, right? Because that's what happens. That when you idolize someone, you, wanna, you eventually become more and more like them. Because who we worship, we become. Worship money, for instance, and we become as cold, hard, and impersonal as cold, hard currency. We often become what or who we worship. And so when we worship God, we actually become more like Him. That when we worship God and sing of His compassion, experience His grace, and receive forgiveness, we then actually gradually become people who are more compassionate, who show grace, and have an easier time forgiving others. That's why God digs our worship. That's why God loves our worship. Because as we worship, as a byproduct, we actually become more like Jesus. Worship, it's all about God, yes. What He has done for us in response, yes. And yet remarkably, crazily, like we benefit and we are blessed because it's done. So who? God. Why? In response to what he has done for us and when.
It's interesting that the psalm begins with David exhorting himself to worship. For instance, in verse 3 to 5, as he reflects on God's forgiveness and God's healing in his own life, he's like, yeah, I want to worship, and he kind of encourages himself to do that. But near the end of the psalm, he actually begins to call on others to join in this worship. So in verse 19, David writes this, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. That here in this psalm, David first proclaims God's universal kingship. That God rules not only Israel, but the entire universe from his throne. And so everyone he encourages, the angels, the heavenly hosts, the creatures around the throne, all the elders, as well as us humans now, everything under his dominion should give him praise. And so it points out to the fact then that we actually join a worship service that started a long, long, long time ago. I like what Constant Cherry writes. She writes this, Worship grounded in God is an eternal enterprise. Worship was occurring before God led the fa- laid the foundation of the earth, when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy. Worship is the joyous duty of all Christians on earth who have set our hope on Christ that we might live for the praise of His glory. Finally, worship will be the way we spend eternity when we join the many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders sing with a full voice. Worthy is the Lamb. And Constant Cherry summarizes it all when she writes, when we gather for corporate worship, that includes you and me right this morning at Tapestry Richmond, our adoration is a significant continuation of that which began before the foundations of the world were laid, that which occurs in heaven contemporaneous with our worship at any given moment, and that which foreshadows the worship to come when Christ reigns. Isn't that good? Worship is actually past, present, and future, that we join a worship service that began a long, long, long time ago, and a worship service that will continue and go on for a long, long time in eternity. So when? When do we worship? Well, the better question is probably, When do we not? Worship is eternal. It's always happening. And so that says something about how we are to live, that we don't actually start a worship service. We don't manufacture worship on Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 and go, okay, that's it. No, worship is not a momentary experience. It is a lifelong activity every day and every moment. Everything is an act of worship. Everything, all of life can glorify God and should be worship in our work, in our relationships, in our marriages, in the way we parent, yes, even in the way we drive our cars in Richmond, and how we shop, and how we do creation care, and so on, and so on, and so on. All of it is worship, because worship never ends. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, praise the Lord. So all of that being said, There is still a place, obviously, for corporate worship, a deliberate, intentional time for us to gather together as a body of Christ here in this moment for this time, to join together to be the body of Christ. It started in Pentecost 
When the early believers and disciples started for the very first time after the ascension to come together, to do life together, to read scripture together, to eat the communion bread together. And, you know, it becomes so commonplace for us now, like this is what we always do on Sunday morning, but it wasn't always the case. And over time, there have been these consistent behaviors or actions in which the church has always done. Actions that were taken from Scripture and that have developed over time in the last 2,000 years. Because the Christian church has kind of, I mean, different churches do different things, but not much has changed actually in the last 2,000 years, that there is this general movement of worship in corporate worship that goes gather, word, table, and send. So if you look in your bulletins this morning, and I've actually took a picture of it, this is what you find, and I put headings in this morning just so you know the flow of what we always do here on a Sunday morning. That first we gather. There's a call to worship, knowing that we are invited by God into this time of corporate worship, always begun by God. Second, there is word of hearing from the Word of God, of reading Scripture, as well as the proclamation and response through singing and music. In fact, most of our songs are taken from the Psalms. Third, table. That's when we celebrate what Christ has done for us, remembering and reenacting both His crucifixion and His resurrection through communion. And fourthly, sending sending us into the world. And that's why we often turn you around during the service because, and this is one of my favorite parts, that we don't end our worship here. We are being sent into the harvest field. We are sent into the world of mission. These four movements then encapsulate the movement of Christian corporate worship. Gather, word, table, and send. These four movements actually can be vividly seen in the story found in Luke chapter 24 of the two disciples who meet Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And at first glance, it seems like, what does this story have to do with worship? But it provides a remarkable parallel to these four worship movements. Let me explain. So the story found in Luke 24 begins with these two disciples of Jesus, not the inner 12, but the outer 500 or so, After the resurrection, on that evening, heading out to Emmaus, they do not know yet that God or Jesus has been resurrected. So it's on this road, as they're beginning this journey, that Jesus himself appears before them on this road, and they don't recognize him at first. Jesus walks with them, talks to them, and teaches them everything they need to know about Jesus himself as written in Scripture. And what I wouldn't give to be part of that conversation, I mean a two-hour seminar on biblical theology from the lips of Jesus himself. That'd be crazy amazing. So on this journey, they even say to themselves, these two disciples, were our hearts not burning within us when he talked with us? and open the scriptures with us. Their hearts went on fire because of the truth found in the word of God. You ever had that? When the word of God kind of reaches out to you, grabs your heart, touched, their hearts on fire. They invite this stranger down for dinner, and then the climax. They're sitting around the table. Jesus takes the bread. He blesses the bread, and then he breaks it. And then all of a sudden, the disciples are like, it's Jesus. Right there, they realize Jesus is in their midst. He has come back alive. This Jesus, no longer are their eyes half closed. No longer are their hearts darkened. No, Jesus, a resurrected Jesus is in their lives, in their midst. And immediately after that, 
They go out in order to tell people the good news, the gospel, that Christ has risen. Oh my word, this is like three weeks in a row and you still don't get it. That Christ has risen with worship. So again, these four elements that deal with worship. Here they are, next slide. That it begins with gather. That Christ approaches his followers. We come here knowing Christ invites us. Jesus is already here. Then there's word that Christ engages them in Scripture, and we've been engaging in word and song for the last little while. And later on, we're going to do the table, where Christ's identity is made in the context of communion and the Lord's Supper. And at the end, there is a sending that because we are inspired, we are to go and tell the story. So you see these movements? This is what we gather and do every single Sunday morning. We gather, there is word and song, there is table, and there is send. And so with that, we begin a new sermon series. And this starts actually the template of our next six weeks in worship. That today I began with a brief introduction of what worship is. Next week, we're going to talk about worship being gathering. The week after that, we're going to be talking about worship as word, and then worship as song, table, and send, and so on and so on. Does that sound good? Who's excited? Okay, good. So let me conclude. At the end of this journey, these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they meet Jesus, and they come to this deep, rich, amazing experience of Jesus in their lives. And I think that's the hope that I have for all of us, that as we come and we continue to come on Sunday morning, and as we begin to worship God outside of this hour, but outside in all of the deepness and richness of it is, that in our worship, Jesus will show up. He will make himself known to us. He will become real in our lives. And through knowing him, through listening to him, our hearts will be on fire and that we can sing and loudly proclaim with the pods of being on our knees, of bowing our heads, and bowing to God our Father and being able to sing and proclaim in our deepest hearts and our souls. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Praise the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Praise the Lord. Praise you, God, for all the benefits, who forgives us of our sins, who heals us of our diseases. Praise you, God, who works righteousness and justice, who makes your way known. For God, you are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, rich in love. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your love for those of us. As far as the east is from the west, you have removed our transgressions from us. From everlasting to everlasting. Praise the Lord, all you heavenly hosts. Praise the Lord, all us servants who do his will and obey. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul.